0: Let's pray and then we'll get into the the teaching. Father, we depend on you to make truth real to our hearts. We ask that you would magnify your son, the Lord Jesus, this morning as we wrap up the 10-word series. And Lord, might the truth of the 10 words, might the truth of your word inspire us to see you more clearly. Might it inflame love and passion in us for you. Might You turn our eyes from the things in this life that matter little to the one who matters most. In Jesus' name, amen. Reading from Hebrews 1 here, Hebrews 1, 1 through 3, God, after He spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets, in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in His Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. And he, the Son, Jesus here, he is the radiance of his, God's glory. He is the exact representation of his, God's nature. He, the Son, upholds all things by the word of his power. When he had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. That's our introduction to the last, to the summary of the ten-word study. I have been uh, really challenged and really encouraged through this study. I think I've told you before I've not had feedback, this much feedback on any other study I've ever done. And sometimes I'm surprised by what scratches where we itch, you know, the response you, you get from folks. But this study has apparently been compelling for you too. I've been convicted and humbled. I've been made aware, frankly, of the numerous, almost infinite ways in which I can sin and justify it in my own mind. You know, as I've looked at these words, hopefully you felt some of that same conviction too. And then the fruit of that, of course, is at least in part seeing God's grace in a new and bigger way too. So hopefully some of those things have been true for you as well. Going into point one, if you have your study sheet, the lawgiver speaks again. And we've been talking about the law, the ten words, the introduction to the law of Moses, that longer covenant God made with Israel through Moses there at Sinai. For all the encouragement we get out of those ten words, for whatever benefit you've had from this series, we are essentially this morning, in a sense, turning our eyes from shadows to the full light of day as we consider the the conclusion. What's the bottom line? What's the end result of studying the ten words? We move from shadows to the full light of day. And, And this is a summary not in which we are going back. We're not reviewing what we've already covered on each of the ten words. Rather, we are seeing that in the final analysis, God means to use the Ten Words, the Ten Commandments, to compel us to see our need for Christ. If you don't hear anything else this morning, that's the one thing you need to hear. That at the end of the day, the Ten Words, they're not to be the beginning and the end of anything for us. They are meant, at the end of the day, to compel us, to drive us, to move us to Christ. And so this morning, the summary isn't rehashing what we've already said. It's connecting the ten words in this study to the person of Jesus himself. That's where they're supposed to take us, I hope you'll see, as we go through here this morning. Whatever we make of the ten words or the law or the prophets and the writings, all that we call the Old Testament, glorious as those truths are, helpful as they are, God says he has ultimately provided something better for us because he's provided someone better for us. So that if we live or hang our hat in the ten words or other parts of the law, we have failed to see the fullest revelation God means us to have from the law. The reason I start with Hebrews 1, uh, we're not sure who the author of Hebrews is, which is why I always say the author of the epistle to the Hebrews. But in the early days of the church, the Jews who believed in Jesus as Messiah were suffering persecution. And they had a temptation to leave Christianity, leave Christ, and go back to Judaism. And so the writer is showing them time after time after time and way after way, he's showing you have nothing but shadows to go back to. Because all those things that we had under Moses and under the law, they were shadows. Christ is the reality. And so he goes through this litany of comparisons where he shows Jesus is better than, and he goes through the list, the law and Moses and the offerings and the priesthood. Jesus is better. He's the fulfillment. Jesus is the light of day. They're the shadows. So there's that reminder to the early church, you have nothing to go back to. The fulfillment is in Christ. Hebrews 1.1, God spoke, the writer says, long ago to our fathers through Prophets through prophets and one of those prophets was the prophet Moses there on Sinai when he got the 10 words that was one of the ways God had spoken in the past now hebrew says in these last days God's spoken again he spoke through Moses God's words absolutely 10 words God's words Yahweh's words by the way when i say Yahweh this morning i'm intentionally using that to go back to the God at Sinai you remember that L-O-R-D in your Bibles when it's all caps is just a transliteration. And we would say sometimes Jehovah, but that's the Old Testament name of promise of God himself, Yahweh. So I use that a lot this morning. But Yahweh had spoken in the past. He'd spoken through his prophet Moses at Sinai. But now Hebrew says he's spoken again, but there's no mediator this time. He's spoken this time through his own son. And in fact, it's Yahweh himself who's come down not just from Sinai but from heaven itself in the person of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who is now speaking again, Hebrew says. In these last days, God's spoken, Yahweh has spoken, this time through his Son. So in the progressive revelation of God's word over the centuries, Hebrews now tells us that the end of that progressive revelation, and that just means God gave us more truth content, over time. That progressive revelation has climaxed because God himself has now shown up in the person of Jesus and has spoken. He's given his final word because Yahweh himself has come down and spoken to us. No mediator. God himself has shown up. Look at verse 3 there in Hebrews 1. He says He's the radiance of His glory, the sun. The sun is the exact representation of God or Yahweh's nature. The Son upholds all things by the word of His power. And we need to make sure that we're on the same page, that we're connecting Yahweh that spoke at Sinai is Jesus who spoke that the writer of Hebrews is referring to. There's no ambiguity for the Jewish audience about this. There's claim after claim after claim. So Yahweh appeared in fire on Sinai, and Jesus is now described as the radiance of Yahweh's glory. So if you look at a flame or if you saw the fire on Sinai, where does the light begin and the flame end? Jesus is the, he's the light emitted from the flame. If you saw Yahweh on Sinai in fire, you've seen Yahweh in Jesus as He displays the glory of the Father. It's the same thing. Yahweh forbid inadequate images of Himself on Sinai, but now the writer to Hebrews says, Jesus is the exact representation of His nature and His substance. You know, we live in a pluralistic age and we we banter about terms about God and, and Buddhism and Hinduism and what is God and what isn't, but for the Jews, any claim that a person was deity, was blasphemy. This claim is blasphemy to the Jews if it's not true. This is a big claim, that the Yahweh that the Jews worshiped through Moses is Jesus who walked in their midst. That's the claim. It's a big, big claim. Yahweh shook Sinai. Do you remember when he comes down in flame and it says it's like an oven, and the earth shakes? Well, that same Yahweh who shook the earth, the writer of the Hebrews says, this is the same Yahweh present in the sun who's actually holding the earth together. At Sinai, it felt like the world was coming apart. And now Yahweh comes down and we're told, well, he's actually the one that held that all together then. And he's holding it together now. That's Jesus. Yahweh spoke in the trumpet blast. You remember from the first several months ago, there's this noise of a trumpet when God comes down to give the 10 words and it grows louder and louder and louder. Well, that same Yahweh with the trumpet blast is now Jesus, who in a more delicate voice, if you will, has now come to the earth and is calling all men to himself. So the writer to Hebrews is making absolute, absolutely clear those early Jewish believers know the one you believed in, this Jesus, he is Yahweh. And if you try and go back to the law of Moses, you're going back to shadows. There's no substance. He is the substance. The one who gave us the law at Sinai, he's the one that walked among us. And he's spoken God's word. He is God's word. You know, in fact, if you look at John 1, you see John, different reference, is saying exactly the same things. John 1, 1 through 3. You know, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God, and the Word was God. He was deity. He was Jehovah. He was Yahweh. It's the same claim. And that through Jesus, God made all that's been made. That's John 1. It's the same as Hebrews 1. So they're absolutely clear, the writers, Yahweh of Sinai is Jesus of Nazareth. No no gray matter in this area at all. As helpful as the ten words are, as challenging and as clarifying as they are, if we do do not move from those ten words to the word, we have missed the fulfillment of God's word. We move from the ten words to the word. John's name for Jesus in John 1. Now, when Yahweh, when the God of the covenant of Sinai came down in Jesus... He kept his own law. He kept his own covenant as a Jew walking through the land. And stick with me through this. Guys, I know it's a little humid, and I'm going through a list of ten rules and some scriptures, and you're going to be tempted to get sleepy, but don't. And if you see someone next to you, pinch them, okay? Because what we see here is Jesus is modeling both the perfections of Yahweh in himself And he's also demonstrating what the ten words kept looked like. He's doing both. He's keeping the ten words and he's putting the perfections of Yahweh on display. Now, in Matthew 5.17, at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, early in Jesus' ministry, there's already some claim that Jesus is trying to get rid of the law and the covenant. And so Jesus says in Matthew 5.17, don't think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. The law includes the ten words. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. I've come not to put them away. I've come to fill them up. And and the Greek word here used, uh, not to bring to an end, it means that we filled something up. Jesus says, I'm the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. I'm not denigrating God's word to the Jews in the old period. I'm filling them up. I am the fulfillment of what God said to the prophets in many portions and in many ways in times past. I'm the fulfillment. So going through a list here, the ten words, the first one, have no other gods before me. I am the Lord your God, hero Israel. Have no other gods before me. Jesus perfectly keeping this law. He is Yahweh on earth, but he's also the son, obedient to the father, Jesus perfectly honored God the Father from his early days in the temple. You think of Luke 2, 49, tells his parents, didn't you know I would have to be in my father's house? I'm obeying my father. To his final submission on the cross in Luke 23, 46, where he says, into your hands I commit my spirit. From beginning to end, there was no other God in Jesus' life. And in fact, Jesus spurns in both Matthew and Luke 4, Satan's offer, Jesus, if you'll just bow down just for a moment and worship me, worship someone other than Yahweh, if you'll worship me for a moment, I'll give you what you want. I'll give you the kingdoms of the world. You know, Jesus says, no, because Deuteronomy says, God said, I have said, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only. Not going to happen. The second word, make no idols, as the radiance of Yahweh's glory and the exact representation of his nature From Hebrews 1, 3, Jesus not only didn't entertain demigods or idols, Jesus couldn't. And do you remember he says to Philip, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Idolatry was impossible in that sense for Jesus. For Jesus to walk on the earth was to present God as he really was. So not only did he not create other idols... Not only did he diminish, not diminish God, who Yahweh was, he was the walking epitome, the walking representation of the living and true God. No idolatry. To the third word, don't attach Yahweh's name to vanity. If you remember, we said this isn't usually for the Jews, especially tied to cursing the way we think of taking God's name in vain today. This for the Jews had more to do with saying something was true of Yahweh that wasn't or attaching Yahweh's name to something that he didn't want to take credit for. That was to diminish God in his name. Jesus always spoke of God the Father, only what was true. He never exaggerated what God was doing or what God wasn't doing. He didn't have to defend his Father. He didn't speak words to the wind about God. He spoke the truth. In fact, John seven eighteen. he said of himself, he was seeking the glory of the one who sent him. He is true. There's no unrighteousness in him. You don't have to worry about, I have some ulterior motive. I'm speaking the truth. I'm not attaching my father's name to something he doesn't want credit for. He kept the third word. The fourth word, honor your father and your mother. Uh, Jesus always did the things he says that pleased his father. Uh, This, for me, is one of the most striking of the ten words. It's the way he honored his heavenly father and his earthly mother. So, you know, I only do those things that please my father on one hand. You know, on the other, as we've talked about before, last hours on earth. And what's he doing in all the agony on the cross? He's taking care of Mary. You know, John, behold your mother. Woman, behold your son. I mean, he was the epitome of honoring heavenly father, earthly mother in all the ways Possible even to the last hours of his death. In fact, he said, if you remember when he prays there in the garden, uh, Lord, I'd love it if you'd take this cup away from me, this crucifixion, my suffering, my separation from you. But not my will, not what I want, but what you want instead. He honored his father and his earthly mother. The fifth word about keeping Sabbath. And you know, as you read the Gospels, the Sabbath was a big deal for the Jews when Jesus was teaching. And it comes up over and over again in the gospel accounts. Because the Jews were saying, the Jewish leaders were saying, you don't keep Sabbath. And Jesus says, well, actually I do. I do keep the Sabbath and I keep it in the very best ways. And you remember Jesus, he quantifies what they thought about the Sabbath because he says, you know what? It's always okay to do good on the Sabbath. You're free to bless someone else or help someone else in need on the sabbath you do as much for an animal you can do that much for someone else on the sabbath and he reminded them that god made the sabbath as a blessing for man that man wasn't there to jump through hoops for the sabbath day's sake that god had made that day of rest where they got face to face with yahweh again they renewed their relationship with god himself because they left the other affairs of life for that day it was to bless them. It was never about cursing them or jumping through the hoops. And Jesus says, I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. And in that claim, because the Sabbath was Yahweh's Sabbath, he claimed directly there to be Yahweh himself again. And he said, this is what I want from the Sabbath. And that's what he lived out. In the sixth word, don't murder. You know, far from being vindictive or vengeful, much less in Word in thought, or indeed taking away someone else's life, you know, when Jesus is reviled verbally, he doesn't revile back. First Peter 2, I think 23. From the cross, Luke 23, 34, he's praying for those who have just crucified him, isn't he? He's not, he doesn't have anger or hatred towards others that would end in murder. He's praying for their forgiveness. And in fact, remember whose place he takes? at the crucifixion. Who was going to be crucified instead? Was Barabbas, a murderer? Yeah. Jesus never murdered. In fact, those people that you or I might say, I want to rise up and kill that person. No, Jesus is praying that God would forgive them, that they'd find grace and forgiveness. The seventh word, don't commit adultery. And by the way, you just get the sense as you go through the ten words. Jesus was the epitome of God's standard of righteousness. And so you see that over and over. And this is just a little bit of them. Seventh word, don't commit adultery. You guys are probably aware. There are wild stories about Jesus and which Mary? Mary Magdalene and they had a child and the descendants live in France today. And uh, it's, it's uh, wacky, you know, it's, it's crazy, crazy. Jesus didn't commit adultery. Jesus was never married. Jesus didn't commit sexual immorality. In fact, what you really see, especially in his relationship with the opposite sex, you see Jesus was the best friend women ever had. You know, people sometimes today talk about Christianity being stifling to women at all. Jesus liberated women, so much so that in the end of Mark and Matthew's gospel, who's following Jesus to help take care of him? It's groups of women. You know, or you think of the Syrophoenician woman. She had a daughter she couldn't help and she just wants some help. And Jesus is there for her. So Jesus was not just a friend of sinners. Jesus was the best friend women had ever seen. He liberated them. He didn't take advantage of them sexually or any other way. He liberated them. Jesus was the best thing that ever happened to women. The eighth word, don't steal, you remember from John ten ten, Jesus says, I'm not the one that's come to steal anything from you. I'm not the one that's come to take stuff away from you. And what does the creator of the universe need with what you or I have anyway? But Jesus says, there is one that steals. You know, the thief comes to kill and rob and destroy. The thief, ultimately, there's Satan himself. Jesus says, that's not me. I'm the good shepherd. I've come not to take what you have. I've come to give you something. And I'm giving you life, and I'm not giving you a little bit. I'm opening up the faucet, the fire hydrant's opening, and I'm giving you abundance of life. I'm not taking, I'm giving. The ninth word, don't lie or don't slander. I love this one. Jesus couldn't have lied. Jesus couldn't have wanted to lie. You know, John 14, 6, Jesus says, I'm the way, I'm the truth. I'm truth with a capital T. I'm ultimate reality. Every word out of my mouth is truth. It can never be otherwise. And guys, this is why it's so important for us. If we experience any liberation on this earth as Christians, it's because the word of God, the truth, is at work in our minds and our hearts. Jesus liberates us because he speaks the truth. And we live in a world and we have hearts that are filled with lies. And so when we give ourselves to the truth, to Jesus' words, we get liberation. Jesus could speak only the truth. That is what he spoke. And his his words of truth are liberation from us. They remove the veil of the lies in our own hearts and in the world around us. The tenth word, don't covet. When tempted by Satan to covet those things the father hadn't yet given him back in the temptation accounts in Matthew, Luke 4, chapters 4, Jesus says, I have no desire for what my father's not providing. The kingdoms of the world, I'm going to get them but it'll be later. I'm not setting my heart, my affections on anything my father doesn't want for me right now. Later in Hebrews, Hebrews 4.15, the writer tells us, Jesus was tempted in every way you and I are with one difference that he didn't sin. So not only did Jesus perfectly keep the 10 words, but tempted in anything you can imagine, any of the types of temptations we can have today. Jesus faced them all, and he came through every one of those temptations perfectly. Tempted like us, but without sin. He kept the ten words, the ways Yahweh meant them to be kept, fully in word and in deed, in inward motivation and outward expression. And when Jesus, when the lawgiver of Sinai came to earth, he displayed the perfections, both of the law, because law is perfect, of the law and his own perfections in his words, and his actions. So the law provided a means of looking at Jesus and gaining some sense of what is he really worth? How good is he? Well, he's really good. You know, that standard that we had for ourselves, the 10 words, well, he fulfills them all. He's good. He's really good. He's perfect. The flip side of that, though, is for you and I, we don't keep the law and we Can't keep the law. And it's important for us to realize that though Jesus did both, we do not and we cannot. The knowledge of God's will in the ten words or the rest of the scriptures, they point out all the ways we're not who God meant us to be. They point out our sin. And hopefully, my hope is that as we've gone through this study on the 10 words, there's a sense in which it's like a magnifying glass where when I start thinking about what does coveting really look like, and I take that magnifying glass and I put that on my own life, my own actions, my own motives, I see coveting in a whole new way. In fact, guys, I, I just confess as I've gone through this study and as in my own quiet times, I've been more convicted in the last few months I think perhaps in any other period in my life, of all the deficiencies, my, my motives being judged by God's Word. And of course, that's a good thing. It, it clarifies, it shows me, man, I'm, I'm not where I should be. And God wants to move me on. When we look at the Ten Words, we see the ways in which we're not what we should be, in which we fail God's standard of righteousness. So when you and I consider the Ten Words... It should include, big time, this realization that I'm not what I should be. God's Word has shown me all these ways in which I fail God's test. I fail His standard of righteousness. Romans 3.20, the law justifies, Paul says, no one. You hold the law up there and say, I'm going to keep it. Paul says, no, never happened. Only one person. The law justifies no one. You remember just a week ago about coveting Romans 7, verses 7 and 8? Paul said, there you know, I thought it was pretty good. I thought life was going along swimmingly. I didn't even know I coveted. But then I read God's law and it said, don't covet. And suddenly I realized, wow, I covet. And not only does the law, does God's word act as a spotlight to show me, but it actually provokes more sin. Because in my rebellious nature to God, when God says, Mike, don't do something, you know what I want to do? I want to do it all the more. So on the flip side for us, Jesus keeps them, displays God's perfections and the perfections of the law. The law, it has the exact opposite effect on us. It shows all our sin. It becomes a magnifying glass or a searchlight. It puts the light on all the ways we're not what we should be. Now, because that's the truth, because that's the case, You and I need to make sure that we do not fall into the carnal trap of moralism. You guys know, even in the church and sometimes especially in the church, we want to comfort ourselves by making believe in our own minds that we're better than we are and maybe presenting ourselves to others as better than we are. And there's a temptation to fall into a kind of moralism where we try and maintain some some outward expression of, man, look how righteous he is, or look how mature they are, or look how perfect they are, man. There's a temptation because, you know, we're religious by nature. And you know that from the fall on, from the fall, you look at Genesis 3, you know, what do we want to do as soon as God convicts us and says, what would you do, Eve? What would you do, Adam? What does Adam say? Does Does he fess up and say, Lord, I disobeyed you? No, he, he blame shifts uh, the woman you gave me. It's really your fault, Lord, and it's her fault. Uh, I'm not responsible. Uh, you had the law. You told us what to do, but it was really her fault. And, and, of course, what does Eve say? She says, well, the serpent tricked me. She doesn't say I disobeyed. She says, the serpent tricked me. And when you and I are convicted by God's word, one of our first carnal responses is, we want to justify ourselves. We want to stand with our first parents and say, uh, her, him. We cannot afford to fall into this hole. Moralism, religious observances that we're doing the thing the Pharisees did. We maintain this outward appearance. That's important. I'm okay. You're okay. You know, we'll, we'll agree to lie about ourselves to each other and we'll, we'll accept the lie. A kind of moralism We can't afford to go there. We're religious by nature. We want to blame shift by nature. We can't afford to go there because the law, God's word, it doesn't have the impact in our life he means it to if we're shifting blame. He presents the truth because the truth will set us free. But if we blame shift and if we get away from what the law is actually meant to do, we're not going to get the benefit. So, do you guys ever say this in your mind? You know, granted, I didn't make all ten, but I was pretty close. The, this, the ten words, you know, uh, not quite, but, you know, I think I'm pretty close. Or, you know, I might say to myself, uh, n- no one's perfect, but compared to you, I'm pretty good. You know, or, or we collectively, or, you know, uh, why can't they? Why can't those people outside our group? Why can't the people at that other church? Or why can't whoever, they, them, you know, they're really bad. You know, we're not that bad. They're really bad. But I'm, I'm close on this thing. You know, I'm, I'm almost there. You know, it's this moralistic death-dealing mentality. And carnal response to the ten words, to God's law that searches us out, shows us our faults, our secret faults, because God wants to liberate us. But if we self-justify we become moralistic, if we give into that religious impulse, we lose the value of God's Word. When someone asks you, this was something I brought up earlier, so when someone asks you, do you keep the Ten Commandments? Do you keep the Ten Words? Here's my response. No, I don't. No, I can't. I aspire to them. You remember we said we're making an emphasis on the ten words where they lead us at the end of the day this morning. But you remember we've said all along that because the ten words represent God's eternal morality and character, and because Jesus said we show Him or we demonstrate our real love for Him by obedience to His will, that we truly aspire to obey God through obedience. We aspire to keep the ten words, but guys, the truth is we don't, and we can't. So just make it easier on ourselves. Do you keep the ten words? No, I don't. And no, I can't. And no, you don't. And no, you can't. And no, they don't. And no, they can't. That's the bottom line. If we're serious as we go through the ten words, we realize we are Eve. We're coveting the fruit. God is forbidden. And we are Israel. We're making the little gods of the nations our gods around us. And we're aching. We're coveting those things God's given to others or kept for himself, not us. And we're the woman caught in adultery in John 8. You know, the secret sins in darkness all of a sudden opened to the light of day. These are our stories because we all have that same sinful propensity. And the law points that out. And that's what God... Wants it to do. That's what it's supposed to do. That's doing exactly what God meant it to. The ten words for any who are honest bring us face to face with our own sins and our own deficiencies. And far from being a means to achieving life and righteousness, the ten words drive us to the grace and mercy of God found in Christ because they show us the impossibility of ever achieving God's standard of righteousness on our own. This is to the last point, point four, on your study sheet. Galatians 3.24, the law, Paul says, has become our tutor to lead us to Christ so that we may be justified by faith. The law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ so that we might be justified by faith. I want to wind down by putting the ten words in a New Testament perspective. And for me, this is really... Helpful because it's visual. It's something I can see in my mind's eye and hopefully you can too. But what's the end of the 10 words? And what's the end of the use of the 10 words in your life and mine? And and what's the final analysis on how I view them? We've talked about one by one. We've talked about honoring God through obedience. We've talked about the conviction those bring. But at the end of the day, what's God's take on the 10 words and, and my life and how I'm connected to them? So so stick with me here for just a minute. If you remember, if you go back to the Exodus account, that first set of stone tablets with the 10 words recorded on it, do you remember what happens? It gets demolished, doesn't it? Moses comes down from Sinai with it. And by the way, Israel's broken all of them before it's been ratified. Moses is ticked. And what's he do? He destroys the two stone tablets just as Israel had already destroyed the ten words and the covenant before the blood's even been spilled. So God makes a second set of ten words. And he tells Moses, take those stone tablets with the ten words written on them, and you're to set them in the Ark of the Covenant. And that Ark of the Covenant, it's to be set in the Holy of Holies inside the tent while they're in the wilderness. And then later on that same ark is to be set in the holy of holies in Solomon's temple. Now that ark it's just a wooden box. Guys it's probably about 2 by 3. It's like a moving trunk. It's made of wood, it's covered inside and out with gold. So you take those stone tablets, the two stat tablets with the 10 words, you stick it in the box. You stick it in the ark. And then on top of that box there was a lid. And that lid was made of pure gold. There's no wood in it. It's pure gold. And on top of the lid, there were two angels. They're looking down at the lid. And that lid is called the mercy seat. And it means the place of atonement. And when Paul says in Romans 3 that Christ has become our propitiation, it's the same Greek word for the lid of the Ark of the Covenant. And when you read about the Ark of Noah in the Old Testament and that's covered with pitch, the word there in Hebrew is the same word for the mercy seat. It's a covering. It's the place of atonement. And so there's the box. The laws are inside. The pure gold mercy seat with the angels looking down, it's there on top. And it sits in the Holy of Holies. Now, once a year, the high priest comes in to the Holy of Holies. And he brings with him blood from a sacrifice. And he's to take the blood of the sacrifice and he's to sprinkle it seven times on the mercy seat. So imagine as the years roll by and you're the high priest and you go in to the Holy of Holies with the blood of the sacrifice and you look down at the mercy seat. What do you think's happened to that over the years? Because every year a priest is coming in. It's only once a year and it's only seven sprinkles. What do you think has happened to that mercy seat over the years? It's covered in blood, isn't it? So above that mercy seat, in the Holy of Holies, Hebrews says, God himself dwelled in a cloud of glory. God himself dwells above the mercy seat in the Holy of Holies in this cloud of glory. And so as God, in the presence of the cloud, as he looks down... On the Ark of the Covenant, what does he see? He sees the blood covering the pure gold mercy seat. He can't see the ten words. That the ten words are covered by the blood that's on the pure gold seat. That's all he sees. And when you take this, and what does that mean for you and I? Guys, you and I, we're the ten words. And the ten words reflect all the ways we break. God's Word, all the ways we fall short of what Christ has called us to be. And when God looks down on those of us who have placed our trust in Christ, who have said to Him, we recognize our deficiency. We have no hope based on our own righteousness. We accept your sacrifice, your substitutionary atonement for us. We're in that box. We're where the tablets are, and when God looks down, He doesn't see our sin. Because the pure gold seed, that is Jesus, and the blood of the Lamb, which is Jesus' blood, that's what Yahweh sees when He looks down towards the ten words that condemn us. He doesn't see them anymore. For you and I, through faith in Christ, God sees the blood of His Son and the purity of the sacrifice he doesn't see the ten words that indict us. Guys, the the final place of the ten words are they've been covered up. They've been covered over by the perfect offering of Jesus himself on the cross at Calvary. And it's his own blood that is the propitiatory sacrifice on top of that mercy seat that allows God to see an adequate offering for sin instead of the commands that condemn us. That's the end of the law. The end of the ten words is Jesus has covered them over by his own perfection and by the perfection of his own offering, by his own blood spilled out for us. If you're not absolutely sure you're a Christian and you're saved, you're going to heaven, if you die this moment, you're going to heaven, you need to get in the box and you need to come under the blood because, guys, there's no ambiguity Jesus is the only one who's walked on this earth that didn't sin. He's the only one who's kept the ten words. And God's word and God's law does nothing else for you and I other than condemn us. And if we're not in the box, if we're not under the mercy seat and the blood of Christ, we have absolutely no hope of redemption. We have only a terrifying expectation, the writer to Hebrews says, of God's judgment. There's only one place of safety And it's under the blood on the mercy seat, under the Lord Jesus himself. The blood of bulls and goats shed to institute the first covenant, Exodus 23, has been replaced with the blood of Christ, Hebrews 9, 14. The blood that fully satisfies God's claims on us. The ten words written on stone are now replaced by the word of God written on stone. Hearts of flesh by the Spirit of God Himself in Second Corinthians three three and the fear of God that was the motivating factor of the Ten Words in Exodus twenty twenty is now replaced by love for our Father Romans eight where we cry out Abba Father Daddy or the love of the bride for the bridegroom First Corinthians seven thirty five Paul says he's trying to to secure undistracted devotion to Christ. You see, it's not the fear. It's not the trembling knees of Sinai anymore. It's love for our Father and it's love for our Savior. Hebrews 1, 3 again. When the Son had made purification of sins, He sat down at the right hand of the Majesty on high. Sin's covered. It's perfectly atoned for. There's a mercy seat. There's a place to find yourself saved and safe from the condemnation the ten words give us. Sin is atoned for. In Christ, the ten words are now covered by the blood and the mercy seat. And that's where you want to be. I'm closing with this. This is words from a song, an old song. William R. Newell as an early Christian. I love this guy. Didn't know anything about him, but I had his commentaries on Hebrews and Romans. And he was a well-known Bible teacher at Moody Bible Institute about a not quite a hundred years ago, but a long time ago. And I'm not sure that he wrote many songs, but he wrote this one. It's called At Calvary. And listen to the words of the second verse, thinking about the ten words and the impact God means them to have on us. He writes there, By God's word at last my sin I learned. Then I trembled at the law I'd spurned, till my guilty soul imploring turned to Calvary to the mercy seat, to the place Jesus offered Himself for us. And His refrain there is, mercy there, mercy at the mercy seat at Calvary. Mercy there was great, and grace was free. Pardon there was multiplied to me. There my burdened soul found liberty at Calvary. Let me close with the last two verses. He says, now I've given to Jesus everything. Now I gladly own Him as my King. Now My raptured soul can only sing of Calvary, of redemption, of an atoning sacrifice. Oh, the love that drew salvation's plan. Oh, the grace that brought it down to man. Oh, the mighty gulf that God did span at Calvary. Guys, that's the end of the law. It's in Christ. We can't keep it. He did. There's a mercy seat. It's covered in His blood. You want to be under the mercy seat, under the blood of Christ. Father, would you save for yourself today more souls, more people who don't yet know you. God, would you bring them under the blood of your son where the forgiveness is freely, freely given because Jesus has become that atoning, propitiatory sacrifice, the perfect offering, Lord, the blood poured out, on the pure gold seat, Lord, thanks that we can rest safely. God, thanks for transformation. Lord, we aspire to honor You and to obey You and to show through loving deeds and actions and words that we belong to You and that we love You, but we confess, God, we fall short in every way, every day. And so we thank You again for Jesus and His perfection. And we ask You to help us keep our eyes on Him. In Jesus' name, amen.